the intro. <laughs> <laughs> Last episode of season one, ladies and gentlemen. I'm awesome. <laughs> so welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And I'm traumatized. <laughs> Oh my goodness, what a way <laughs> to go out. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. This is the end of book one. So after this, we're going to be taking a brief break for about a month. But um, yeah, gosh, didn't we select the best possible text to make an exit on? <laughs> I mean, exquisitely well-written, beautifully executed film. If I had never read or seen either of these, I would have been okay, though. It's a lot. A trigger warning off the top, I think, before we get even remotely further into this is that the this book and film deal very directly and graphically with childhood sexual abuse mm -hmm. rape drug use sex work sometimes voluntary and sometimes not and so if any of those things are things that you would prefer not to listen to or if you're like listening to this in your car with your toddler for instance <laughs> this might not be the episode for that yeah come into it with the right frame of mind yeah and we're not going to talk gratuitously about any of those kinds of things, but we are going to talk frankly about them. And we're going to talk in some detail about what the text does, obviously. Mm -hmm. So just a, a fair heads up. You should uh, determine your own sense of comfort with those topics before you proceed. Yes. And of course, because we haven't actually said what we're talking about. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, we are talking about Mysterious Skin. The novel's from 1995 and the film adaptation is from 2004, I believe. Hey, Joe. Yes, so I was actually correct last week when I said that <laughs> the film is celebrating its 15th anniversary this week. It's just that I have fat sausage fingers, and when I went to input it into the Excel spreadsheet, I hit 2006 instead of 2004. And I think it's worth noting that this is definitely in sort of the cult classic vein of films. I was reading a lot of things online about people who are like, why is this film not more well-known, this was really significant to my coming of age, etc. So we're really hoping, I think, that if this is a text that means a lot to you, you'll, um, you'll share your thoughts with us. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with the way that you've proposed it, particularly the film. I'm interested to see how many people know the book. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that in a moment. But uh, before we go any further, do you have any final homework you'd like to share with the class? I do, Joe. I do. Finally finished this season of Riverdale. <gasps> oh, okay. So this is season <laughs> three with the Goblin King or something? I don't even actually know. I feel like I've been watching this show for 72 years. So I don't know right. what season we're on. It's either three or four. Okay. But I'm all caught up now. So uh, listeners know that I don't get as much time to watch things. And I was thinking this week, I was like, how much do I actually watch in a week? I always watch Coronation Street on Sunday morning. Always. Um, I always watch whatever we've committed to watching for the week. Mm -hmm. And I usually can sneak in like one other hour of TV. Right. And lately I've been trying to get through the end of Riverdale. No one is really sure why. But yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get one of those shows where you just feel like you're committed now? Like you have some responsibility to see this atrocity out to the end? Because that's how I feel about Riverdale. And I want to say that it is a very silly show. Yes. In that the characters, I, like I'm never, hmm, there's no real through line. Like nobody's a consistent character. Their motivations don't make sense now to who they were initially. 
Or maybe even last episode. Episode to episode, yeah. And it's like all of these characters are really in the service of the plot. But normally when that happens, the plot is real coherent. Right. (laughs) And here the plot is also not real coherent. Like it's very easy to get confused about what's going on. And the other thing that's not coherent is genre. Like I was thinking about you as I was finishing up the second last episode or third last episode, because there's this episode that happens at a masquerade that they have at school, you know, like all high schools have a masquerade. And um, (laughs) it fully becomes a slasher. Yes. And the fact that they actually have one of the actors from Scream Mm -hmm. recreating seminal lines from that film. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this is by design. Like this is... Oh, totally. There are many things about Riverdale that I think are maybe accidental or... (laughs) unintentional and its genre mashups are very much well-intentioned maybe not always well executed (laughs) well it's it's from its inception it's been a pastiche of youth culture so like everything from the fact that molly ringwald plays archie's dad and um, Hmm? luke perry plays archie's mom what nope what (laughs) molly ringwald does not play the dad and luke perry does not play the mom what did i say that's what you said. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that. There is very little gender switching from Molly Ringwald and Luke Perry. <laughs> okay, but fair. But yes, the fact that they play Archie's parents. Yes, this is what I'm getting at. Like, okay. th- from the inception of the show, <laughs> from the inception of the show, we're seeing like mashups, we're seeing self-reference. Mm-hmm. It gets less, that's the other thing though that gets less coherent, right? Mm-hmm. Is that in the beginning, it's all youth culture mashup. But then like by season two, there's this whole... Lovecraftian thing happening that's profoundly confusing. There's weird intertext. There's an intertext with a Canadian play from like 1954 that I think I might write an article about. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. There's all this stuff going on. And uh, I don't know what Riverdale is, though, as a cultural product beyond like a fun scavenger hunt at this point. Mm-hmm. Because the plots are so incoherent, the characters are so incoherent, the thematic use of pastiche is so incoherent, the writing is inconsistent and often just bad, the <laughs> acting is wildly melodramatic, the situations don't even make sense within the universe that the series has constructed. Right. And yet, the scavenger hunt component is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why for a lot of people, it ends up falling into that guilty pleasure category because Mm. you can watch it and recognize that there's a bunch of things that are just ridiculous and zany and bizarre. But the way that it's put together, the genre mashups, the intertextuality, the kind of weirdness of it all. I know that's why it attracted me at the beginning in the first season when I was still kind of diligently watching is because Mm -hmm. it did feel like a more contemporary version of Twin Peaks, or at least Mm. it aspired to be that nothing can be Twin Peaks. So to try to even go for that is a bit of a fool's errand, but the first season had that playfulness, that Mm self-awareness that made it enjoyable. And the reason I dipped out is just because it got to the point where it started to feel like a Ryan Murphy text where 
things were happening, but then it felt like the writers or maybe the showrunner was just getting bored with things and they were deciding like, hmm, we don't really want to follow that up anymore. You know what? Yeah. We're not going to try to tell a coherent story. Like I, I get very frustrated with texts that don't finish what they start. Mm-hmm. And it feels like Riverdale is constantly in the process of undermining itself in that situation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's an inherent likability and it looks great and everyone is very attractive so Mm -hmm. it's easy to understand why people get sucked into its gravitational pull and the final episode of this season gave probably the wildest cliffhanger i've ever seen in my life (laughs) really which means i'm probably coming back to find out how they are going to shoehorn in all that they've suggested is coming and this massive twist to season two or four or eight (laughs) 10, 97, I don't know. All of the above. (laughs) It does feel like a massive homework project to me, though, more than like something pleasurable, which is why it's weird that I'm still watching it, considering that I don't have time to watch things I don't like. So it can't be that I don't like it. Maybe you need to write about how you're lying to yourself that you don't (laughs) fully love it. (laughs) It's like every time Dev comes in while I'm watching, he's like, what you watch? And I'm like, the very bad show. He's like, okay. Like, there's something going on that I'm obviously finding pleasurable, but I I don't know what it is beyond the sort of scavenger hunt aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my news. I finally finished it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope you feel better. You <laughs> just wax poetically about it for about seven minutes, so I feel like we're really reaching a breakthrough status in your therapy sessions about Riverdale here. <laughs> I'm looking forward to discussing it on the show, Joe. I... Uh... Okay. Well, you know what? At some point, you deserve payback for the things that I put you through. So (laughs) it's probably only fair. Yep. Uh, Okay. So I, once again, do not really have to do homework this week because... Are you going to do our listener mail? We have emails, Brenna. (laughs) I know you forwarded them to me. I got so excited. The floodgates opened and all of a sudden people are now getting in contact with us. It's like, hi, where have you people been for 25 episodes? (laughs) They were just waiting to find out they might get a mention on the show. That's all. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So big shout outs this week to a couple of people who wrote into us. So we heard from Leo and Andrew. And I feel like I should also give a mention to Emily, who is the other person who wrote us quite a while ago. And I did not mention her last week when we were talking about some of the other people who had written in. So Emily, Mm. I still appreciate you. And people have begun sending us through books that they have read and enjoyed or books that they're keeping on the horizon. And I'm loving it. So I've been forwarding them on to Brenna so that you can check them out. And I'm so grateful because like we can't possibly keep up with everything. And so we're super grateful to know about other texts that people want us to check out. And also, I really love that Leo sent us texts to not check out. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Especially from their perspective of being a transgender teen. Like, hey, guess what? Uh, The books Luna and Pulp are not recommended by Leo. Two that came up in the email from Leo that I just wanted to underscore, because I think we've mentioned both of them briefly on the show before, Girl Man's Up and Ramona Blue. Mm -hmm. Girl Man's Up is Canadian, but both great queer, sort of good summer reads, I think both worthy of, of checking out. So if you missed them when we mentioned them before, got some reinforcement here from Leo suggesting you check out Girl Man's Up and Ramona Blue. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
I mean, obviously, we'd love to hear from people talking specifically about anything that we raise in an episode. But if you just want to share book recommendations with us, if you've got something that you've enjoyed, something that you have not enjoyed, we obviously want to hear about it. So don't ever hesitate to reach out is what we're saying. Definitely. I noticed that there was definitely a theme of people being like, I'm sorry you were so badly tortured by I Love You, Beth Cooper. Here are some actual good books (laughs) you could read. Oh my goodness. (gasps) I still have not recovered. Although I did really enjoy the fact that we did get an apology tweet from the (laughs) author himself on Twitter. I still can't believe you tagged him in that tweet. Notoriety (laughs) is good publicity, Uh, Andrew, I just wanted to point out, recommended Internment by Samira Ahmed, which is a book I have been meaning to bring up. That sounds, oof. When I read that, oof. I know, I know. So the, the I'm going to give you the synopsis that Andrew wrote for us, which is a horrifying story set in the near future about a Muslim teenage girl sent to an internment camp, a sad read, but an important one. It's been on my radar and I'm hoping that I'll be able to talk about it in homework in season two. And Andrew's little note just popped that a little bit higher up on my list. Yeah. Yeah. My soul may have died just a little bit reading that. Yeah. I feel like there's just a bunch of texts that we have circling our radar right now that are in kind of handmaid's territory Mm -hmm. in terms of very close to real life realness. Mm -hmm. And I say that not at all facetiously, but in the way that it's, I don't know, it's it's difficult. Like the book that we're about to talk about, the Mm -hmm. film that we're about to talk about, it's Mm -hmm. got a lot of heavy themes going on Mm -hmm. and sometimes you just need to protect yourself but I think we also have a responsibility to read and watch some of these things so that we can a discuss them but also b because they have merit and they have important things to say and just because it sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to address it Definitely. And I think, especially when we talk about the film today, I was telling Joe off the top that this is the first time that I have skipped a section of the film that I just did not feel capable of watching. We'll talk about why I made that choice when we get to talk about the film. But um, yeah, I think we definitely recognize the difficulty in the content that we're dealing with. We try to be mindful of trigger warnings and stuff, but also we think this stuff is important. Right? That's why it makes it to the show. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Dealing yeah. with it is difficult sometimes. Yeah. And we put on a happy face and try to light comedy our way through it whenever possible. Yes, yes. So we will still try to have some laughs today. <laughs> <laughs> some of them uh, will be bitter. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, Brenna, what is Mysterious Skin for those who have not yet delved into it? Okay, so my sort of overarching thematic line for this book is that it's a book about two young men who are sexually abused as children. They're sexually abused by the same baseball coach when they are children. And it's really a book about the very profoundly disparate ways the two deal with the trauma that they've experienced. So our protagonists are Brian and Neil. Brian lives with his mom and dad in a very small town. His dad is an asshole. (laughs) His dad is awful. Um, His dad sort of alternates between clearly wishing he didn't have kids at all and wishing he just didn't have kids like the kids he has. Mm -hmm. And dealing with it with alcoholism. 
dealing with it with alcoholism and absenting himself. He's great. Yeah. And sports. He deals with it with sports too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh huh. So that's Brian. He's got a sister and his mom. He's very close to his mom. When the abuse happens for him, it's a completely dissociative response that he has. He basically sort of loses the time when the abuse took place and he experiences a number of physical responses to the trauma, nosebleeds, blacking out. He starts wetting the bed again. Nobody really looks into why any of this is happening to him. Oh, we should make a mention that this book and film take place in the 80s for the most part. Oh yeah, that's right. 1981 as when the action starts or when I guess when the abuse happens, 1981, and the text runs through to 1991 when the boys are uh, 18 and 19. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I say that is because when you were reading off the list of symptoms, that was actually one of the very first things that sprang to mind was that if this text maybe took place in a more contemporary modern setting, those might have been flagged as warnings that people would have paid more attention to. Whereas here, because it's the 80s and there's less of a sense that children are in danger when you send them off to Mm -hmm. participate on a baseball team Mm -hmm. no one seems to think anything of it except you know they they get mad at brian because he's acting oddly yes and uh, i have to say like as the mother of a small person in the process of looking for a good daycare (laughs) oh no oh gosh Mm. Mm. yeah the world is not a bad place, Brenna. Oh there God. are many good people out there. Uh, allegedly. Yeah, I spent Tuesday interviewing at daycares and then got home and like plowed into this book and I was like, oh, oh God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Darkest timeline. Right mm-hmm. <laughs> and this dissociative experience that he has, you know, he only remembers very small snatches from his experiences and he he begins over the course of the narrative to craft a story for himself. Mm-hmm. that he was abducted by aliens. And that becomes the story that he tells himself to deal with why he is missing all of this time, why he was having these physical responses, why no one else seemed to notice that he was going through this trauma. So that's Brian. Mm-hmm. Neil, on the other hand, is around the same age and on the same team, but he comes from a really different family dynamic. His father is absent. His mom, hmm, his mom obviously loves him a lot. Yes. But she's also... Also an alcoholic. She's also an alcoholic. And she's absent. She's absent because she has to work to support them. She's also absent because she's often off with boyfriends. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with the dynamic in their house is that there are very few boundaries. And so Neil is sexualized very early in that he sees his mom having sexual relationships. He finds her copies of Playgirl around the house. So he's he's aware of his sexuality he has language for the kinds of things that are going to happen to him in an abuse setting Mm -hmm. way earlier than he should yeah and i think he also comes to associate sexual activity with pleasure like he sees his mom enjoying it he sees the heightened emotionality that she has around boyfriends coming and going yes so when things start to happen to him he I don't want to say that he's mature enough to handle it because of course he is not. No. But he thinks he is. Yes. He thinks he is because he he and his mom almost have a relationship with their friends. Their boundaries are really screwed up. He's very much the man of the house within the family from like a really young age. Yeah, like age five. <laughs> yeah. And so he's aware of 
he's aware of his mother as a sexual being. He's mm-hmm. aware of sexuality very early. He is also aware of his own sexuality, like that he likes looking at the men in his mom's Playgirl magazines. And I thought that that was a really interesting choice on Scott Himes' part, not to, not to associate his sexuality with the abuse that he suffers. Like, I think that's a really significant thing that we know Yes, that Neil has, has recognized this about himself prior to the abuse starting. Mm-hmm. However, it makes him a very easy, for lack of a better word, victim for the yes. baseball coach because there's no meaningful male figure in Neil's life. He's alone a lot of the time. He's a latchkey kid at eight. And so when the coach begins to groom him by letting him play video games, eating whatever candy he wants, driving him where he needs to go, being the person who looks after him before and after baseball practice, Neil is perfectly situated to fall prey to those Mm -hmm. kinds of overtures and advances. Yeah, he's hungry for the attention, for the male attention. And the fact that he's also having a sexual response to the coach just kind of doubles down on the idea. And so all of these things come together to mean that Neil's way of coping with the trauma that he experiences is to believe that he and the coach were in love to believe yes. that this was somehow with an eight-year-old boy, my God. I know. Neil convinces himself that this had been a consensual relationship. Yeah. And an equal relationship. And mm-hmm. it's like a summer romance. Some of the scenes where he talks about that, when he describes his experiences sexually with the coach, you have to constantly remind yourself that he's eight because he describes it in his teenage self. He describes it as though he's like 15. 16. Mm. Like the descriptions are very like, you know, and then I wanted to do this and then I enjoyed that. So that's how Neil copes with the trauma that he has experienced. He Mm -hmm. reframes it as consensual and loving what was actually abusive and traumatizing. Yes. And so we have these two parallel journeys going on in the narrative. Brian is coming to the realization that he has to figure out what actually happened to him, that it wasn't a UFO, that something concrete and real happened that he needs to figure out. And at the same time, Neil is very slowly coming to the realization that that's actually not what love looks like and that he too has been traumatized. And they both make choices. Brian lives a very insular life. He doesn't have any friends. He basically is at home or he's at the uh, science museum learning about UFOs. That's basically it. That's his world. He makes a connection with a woman on the on TV who has been, believes she has been abducted by aliens. And that is sort of a connection that he tries to build. But ultimately, when she attempts to, to make sexual advances upon him, the trauma reemerges and he can't, he realizes then that there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. Neil continues to seek out sexual relationships that echo the relationship he had with the coach in that he seeks out older men of a certain sort of body stamp particular kind of mustache and he hustles he's engaged in prostitution yes because he was paid by the coach for performing certain sexual activities yeah the coach would pay him like a crisp five dollar bill and so he associates that payment with a kind of thrill and a kind of value that he goes and seeks out for himself when he's old enough to ride his bike to the park Mm -hmm. to cruise or be cruised it's awful yes but Where there is tenderness in this book, and oh my god, there is not enough tenderness in this book, (laughs) 
It is in the friendships that emerge. First, Neil has a best friend, Wendy, who's basically in love with him. But everyone is in love with Neil. Everyone's in love with Neil. But she's trying to also sort of shepherd him to make better choices. She moves to New York ahead of him and he comes to live with her. And she's always trying to help him understand the dangers and the risks in the life that he led in Kansas are so much greater in -hmm. New York in the early 90s. And AIDS as a specter hangs over the latter part of this novel for sure. Which I had completely forgotten about. I had actually only seen the film. I had never read the book. Mm. I'd completely, I wonder if repressed is the right word, but I had completely forgotten all about it. And it's so evident in almost all of Neil's scenes. Yes, yes. This concept of risk. And within the context of Kansas, Neil is able to convince himself that safe sex is safe sex where he is in control right? Yeah. Which is an illusion, A, the illusion that he has any control in these scenarios, and B, the illusion that he can be safe Mm -hmm. in some of the choices that he makes is sort of ripped away from him in New York. So he has this friendship with Wendy that's really important. He also has a friendship with, my gosh, I can't remember his name. Eric. Eric, thank you. He has a friendship with Eric, who's a boy who moves to town from California, who is openly gay and becomes friends with Neil as sort of the only other person who maybe will understand him, but he quickly falls in love with Neil as well. But there's also a friendship after Neil moves to New York that emerges between Eric and Brian, because Brian is trying to find Neil. Brian finds this photograph of the baseball team and realizes that Neil knows something. Mm -hmm. And indeed, what we discover as that portion of the narrative progresses is that their trauma is deeply shared, that the coach first groomed Neil and then used Neil to convince other boys to join in or to be victimized. And Brian was one of those boys. And so ultimately what redemption, healing, tenderness, honesty exists in the text really exists at the very end when Brian and Neil meet as teenagers and Brian convinces Neil to tell him what happened. Mm-hmm. And, then and the that's narrative where just ends. The book ends. <laughs> oh, did you want closure? Oh, did you want to hear that everything turns out okay? Sorry, all you get is the truth. And then it's over. It's a lot. <laughs> it's you a may lot. have texted that to me. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, this book is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It is. So And the moms both suck so much. I can't. But the moms are trying. They are trying. So I will confess, part of me feels like, once again, I've dipped into virgin suicides territory, and I'm not actually sure that this is YA. Mm. But I I honestly found so many similarities between Helm's writing and Eugenides' writing mm-hmm. in terms of they're both narratives that take place in the past. They're both principally boy protagonists told with a kind of not rose-colored glasses about the past, but they're very evocative. They're very emotionally descriptive. Mm-hmm. And they're both about traumas, like mm-hmm. childhood traumas that end up shaping and directing the future and how it kind of spreads like a shotgun blast through the lives of all of the individuals who end up getting touched by these people who have been hurt. Mm-hmm. And there's something so 
powerful about that. It doesn't hurt that mm-hmm. the writing is so magnificent. I it think really this book is. is just incredibly well written. And there were a lot of things that bother me in other books. Like I hate jumping between multiple narrators. And in this book, we get Eric's voice, we get Neil's voice, we get Brian's voice, we get Wendy's, we get Neil's no, we get Brian's sister's voice. Mm-hmm. And normally that really annoys me because it feels like we talked about with Adam Silver, where you're kind of parachuting into other people and you're like, why am I hearing this perspective? Like, mm-hmm. where are the people that I should be focused on? Right, here whereas here it works. it works because, yeah, it works because the whole point is there is no such thing as a, a singular truth, right? Mm-hmm. Brian's version of what happened is obviously not true like the moment he starts talking about alien abductions you're like no you were like the moment you first meet him when you first meet brian he's in a crawl space bleeding yeah and his father's upstairs asleep and you you know know it's not an alien abduction you know he's been abused right and it's just about figuring out he doesn't want to go back to baseball and they find him in a crawl space it's like well yeah two and two two and two so you know from the beginning that his version of events isn't true and then you read neil's version of events and it is so profoundly Mm -hmm disturbing the way and he also describes his affection for the coach and there and you know it is also not real right yeah. like that an eight-year-old can't have a consensual sexual relationship that's not actually a thing that no. can happen and so so much of what this book is about is how there is no singular truth but we make meaning through our relationships with other people and it's only when those relationships with other people are good that the meaning can be good if you know what i mean right like neil shares this lie of an existence with the coach they might both believe in that truth but that truth can't be good because he's not a good person obviously right and i think it's fascinating too that the coach in a way is not a real person Mm -hmm. either like we never find out what happened to him we never find out if he was apprehended we know that he moved Mm. towns presumably neil believes because a parent complaint yeah and therefore he was about to be discovered so he had to leave before that came out but the book is resolutely not about clarifying that angle it is strictly about brian and neil coming to some kind of acceptance What's interesting is, I mean, yes, it's also not about the adults at all, right? We never get anything focalized through the adults, which is why as complex a text as this is and as often graphic, I do still think it's, it's a difficult, it's a mature YA text, but the insistent focalization through the young people, Mm. even when they're looking back, they're looking back from the perspective of being 18 or 19. They're not looking back from the perspective of being middle-aged adults the way Virgin Suicides was. Right. It's interesting because I've been listening to this podcast. It's a CBC original podcast called And the Band Played On. Okay, yeah. And it's about three perpetrators of sexual abuse who all worked in one high school in Ottawa in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're sort of trying to uncover why it was allowed to go on for so long, why there are so many generations of survivors of these three teachers. And they talk about how, like, that's how it was dealt with. If a parent complained that their son had been seemingly overly intimate with the music teacher, it's the music teacher, the coach, and I can't remember what the other guy, I think the other guy is also a music teacher. Yeah. yeah. And they're just, they just get moved to another school. Like, yes. there's never any sense of like, well, we're going to investigate or God forbid, press charges. No, they mm-hmm. just shuffle him off. They had this interview with people who worked at the school board at the time who called it the Dance of the Lemons. Oh, goodness. And you're just like, 
I mean, I, I recognize that we did not have the understanding now that we had of the impact of these kinds of traumas, but these things were still illegal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like, people inherently know that it's not right or else they wouldn't feel the need to do any kind of action at all. Right? Like, it's a cultural taboo for a reason. And yet there has been a longstanding, I mean, until very recently, and I'm sure it is... I'm sure this behavior still exists in some communities where the problem is the person talking about it. And if you can just get the person to stop talking about it, i.e. move the perpetrator away and hope it never comes up again, mm -hmm. then everything's going to be fine. Yeah. But you read a story like this, or you listen to a podcast like that, where you reckon with the impact of this kind of trauma long term on, on human lives. And Man, I, I've read a bunch of reviews from psychologists, actually. Like, there were a whole bunch of psychologists in this one newspaper article I was reading who were talking about how this is, Mysterious Skin is probably the most accurate representation of how trauma from sexual abuse manifests itself in young boys that any really? of them had ever read. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This sort of two paths, the Neil path and the Brian path, are like really typical sort of textbook representations of how that actually feels hmm yeah that is so fascinating so as i mentioned i'd seen the film and this is probably one of the strongest adaptations that we've covered in the entirety of the podcast thus far like the film is exceptionally good at capturing what works within the book and they there's not a lot of detours or significant alterations mm -hmm. so reading the book brought up a lot of the original feelings i had about the film but the weird thing and i'm interested to hear what you think of this is i always found brian's story less interesting mm. than neil's mm. and part of me wonders if that's because i also identify as gay so i I mean, I don't see myself in Neil's journey, but there are echoes or there are similarities that are so resolutely part of the queer experience. I think part of it is that I always anticipated that Brian would come out at the end of the text, and he doesn't. He's almost still asexual by the end of it. Like, for him, that's not part of his journey. Mm-hmm. His journey is about coming to grips with the fact that the narrative he constructed for himself is not true and coming around to what actually happened. Whereas Neil's is entirely about his sexual journey and realizing that what happened to him was not love and it's not okay. Mm -hmm. But it sometimes feels like Brian's journey is too much of a detour, maybe just because we implicitly as readers already know the story he's telling himself is not true. Mm -hmm. But that's a very interesting thing to say then that that is an actual path that some people take when they have encountered this in real life. Like that is a cognitive strategy that they adopt to not deal with their trauma. I know there are definitely some schools of thought that suggest that if somebody presents seeking therapy and they have this sort of belief that they were once abducted or they have these gaps in their time that sexual abuse is the first thing to be investigated for. Because wow. I think that dissociation and that, it's almost like your brain's just rejecting it, right? Your brain's just like, I can't process it. And mm -hmm. so I'm just going to leave you this gap. And you know what? You you fill that in however you like, but yeah. I, am, I am gone. Take your time. I'll be here in 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you're older, we'll talk about it. I agree with you that Brian's journey is less interesting. 
And interesting seems like a terrible word. It by does, the way. but I, I appreciate that. <laughs> but Brian is less interesting, right? And I, I don't mean that in a cruel way, but like he's almost like a blank slate in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, right? And part of that I think is because he's so sheltered. Neil is out having like wild and dangerous sexual encounters. He's doing literally all of the drugs. He's yep. got the best sidekick in Wendy. He's causing these ripple effects of trauma with his own trauma, like that scene with Stuart that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. He is inherently more interesting. Brian's journey is an insular one. He doesn't leave his house unless he has to. The only thing that's really interesting about him is the way in which his relationship with his mother begins to parallel Neil's relationship with his mother in that they become each other's sole support in ways that are not totally healthy. Yeah. But there isn't anything interesting about Brian. No. Because he's constructed, that's how he's coping, right? Like, I'm using, I mean, the word interesting, yeah, you're right, it's inherently like a troubling term to use, but his brain is working really hard to actively suppress, process, or reframe the interesting thing that happened to him. And it takes literally all of his psychic energy to do that. I think it's really important that he doesn't sort of come to a realization about his sexuality as part of this journey, because I think it would be really easy to then be like, sexual abuse equals queerness. Yes. As an outside reader to the text. Like, I think what is powerful about their parallel journeys is that the trauma of the abuse is totalizing but it isn't everything about their identities. And that's really important, right? And like, it doesn't get a say in everything about who they are. And I think that's really meaningful as a choice. It's just like I said off the top, it's really, I think, important that that Neil gets, I mean, Neil is hypersexualized from a young age and none of that relationship is healthy. Mm-hmm. But his gayness, his sexuality, doesn't get wrapped up in the coach from no. the beginning. He has this other understanding of himself before that happens that I think is really important. Yeah, And it's interesting, really, because if you think about the nature of sexual abuse and the fact that in this book it's an adult man who's preying on little boys, there's actually very little sexuality at Mm -hmm. play here. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of trauma and there's a lot of abuse. And in the case of the coach, just, you know, for the back row... This is not about a gay man who's preying on children. This is about a sexual abuser who mm-hmm. is seeking to assert power and authority mm-hmm. over young people. And that's why he has to move, not because he was about to be found out, as Neil speculates, but also because he had actually been bumped up to coach a higher mm-hmm. or an older level team mm-hmm. where his power manipulations would not work. And mm-hmm. One of the things that I love about Helm's work is crafting, uh, it's a bit of a trap, right? Like when you learn what the coach does to make the boys feel comfortable. So the use of video games, of sugary snacks that the parents would never buy, you know, pizza when you feel like it, all of these things that are just so insidiously predatory. Mm -hmm. This is not about sex. This is about domination. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so disgusting is when you read this, hopefully no one, God, I would hope no one under like 15 is reading this book or yeah. watching this movie. But hopefully when you read this, like you see that and your mind is just immediately cued. This is a predator. Mm-hmm. It's so disturbing. 
oh, it's such textbook grooming behavior, right? It's like, there's the scene where he says to him, I get the feeling you're on your own a lot of the time, huh? Ugh, the skin crawls. And like in this horrible way, Neil's mom signals this to the coach, right? Like when she goes to the first ball game with Neil, she's like, okay, just so you know, like I work a lot and he's going to be coming to games by himself and he'll need one of the other moms to drive him home. Yeah. Like I'm not saying she's like, hey, abuse my kid, but she, no. <laughs> she signals to the coach, yeah. like, this is prey. Here's information that you can use to your advantage. Mm -hmm. And he does. And he does, yeah. And it's interesting when you then contrast that with Brian's mother and how defensive she becomes when their relationship is threatened by mm -hmm. Avalyn, the woman who claims to be abducted by aliens. It's interesting because this is actually one of the biggest distinctions, I think, from the book and the film, which is that in the book, Avalyn is so much older than mm -hmm. Brian. And... Mm -hmm. I don't think it's meant to be a particularly predatory field, but there is a certain amount of manipulation. I'm not even sure if either party is really aware that they're doing it, but she is luring him in with their shared experiences and maybe sexualizing that inappropriately. I think that she is. I think that she... So we also what we also know about her, though, is that she's been on exactly one date, and when she got home from the date, her father threatened to kill the boy who took her out on the date. So, yeah. And she lives on a farm, so she's not exactly interacting with you know, a host of, of available men. Yeah, she's much older than him, but she's deeply emotionally stunted. And let's face it, I mean, what the text is signaling to us is that her trauma, too, is not really from a UFO. Oh my right? gosh, I never even thought about it. Never. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, oh, that scene where you see the no. dad on the tractor in the film version was pretty... Um, Oh, Brenna, you just made it like 10 times worse. <laughs> I'm sorry that she wasn't really abducted by aliens, Joe. I just thought she was an odd woman. Mm. Yeah, oh. but trauma, I mean, the book is all about how trauma has roots and how it has branches, right? Yes. And so she does victimize or pr she does prey upon Brian or attempts to, but I don't think it's an any more conscious act of predatory behavior than, for example, what Neil does to Stuart. And I think what becomes so disturbing about these scenes is... Oh, we haven't actually clarified who Stuart is. I know, I don't want to. So Stuart is a minor character. So there's the inciting incident that happens over the summer when Brian and Neil are part of the same baseball team. And then the action, uh, not even that word, the bot jumps ahead to Halloween. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's the same year or the next year. I can't recall. But um, it's, it's the next year because Wendy has moved to town by then. Right. Okay. So the following Halloween... Brian experiences a black. Oh, it's two years. Two it's years. Two years. Okay. Yeah, because Brian tells us that it's been two years since he left the team when he has that next encounter. So Halloween, two years later, Brian has an incident where he imagines that he is uh, once again abducted or, or assaulted by an alien presence after he runs out of a haunted house. And of course, we later learn that the coach is mm -hmm. the person who did that. And the parallel story that's happening at the same time is that Neil is out trick-or-treating with Wendy and they stumble upon a boy that they both know named Stuart who is developmentally challenged. And Neil escorts Stuart along with Wendy to his house and puts firecrackers into his mouth and sets them <laughs> off, <laughs> which is 
horrifying and just really difficult to process. Mm-hmm. And then after it's revealed that Stuart has been injured as a result of this, as you would expect, he's uh, suffered some mouth injuries. And the way that Neil decides that they will prevent him from tattletailing on them is that he molests him. Mm-hmm. And the framing of this, like the word choice that Neil uses is a man did this to me once and it felt good. So yeah. And he says, this will get him on our side. Yeah. Which is horrifying. It's horrifying. And it establishes a behavior in Neil in which he, you could make the argument that it's unconscious, but he ultimately ends up using everyone who comes into his circle so he he sexualizes every relationship and if he knows that he has someone quote on his side in terms of making them fall in love with him he then emotionally most often emotionally abuses them so both Mm -hmm. wendy and eric arguably do things they cover for him they make excuses for him they steal they put him up and they put up with his bad behavior and christopher before wendy too right So Christopher is a slightly older boy who teaches Neil where to go to hustle. Mm -hmm. And he's Neil's only friend until Wendy comes to town. And there's just this one scene. It's like the last time we ever hear about Christopher. And he always drives Christopher home from school. And Wendy's now in town. And like Wendy gets in the car with him and they go. And he he waves to Christopher as they go. (laughs) It's like, oh, bye, Christopher. So much so that I completely forgot who Christopher was until you just mentioned it. Yeah, no, I know. And so we have this... Everything is cyclical in the book. Yes, and very much so. Everyone is existing in the ripple effect of the trauma that has occurred, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. Are you still there? I am. Yeah, can you not hear me? No, you stopped and I thought you were going to continue. <laughs> no, I was just sad. <laughs> uh, it's interesting what you said, though, about how the trauma in a way has branches and roots, because mm-hmm. it did get me thinking about how there's also a very organic, process to the way like metaphorically speaking the way that the book is written so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reconnecting to nature Mm. like brian goes on fishing trips with his mom he and eric go to the watermelon patch so that they can steal rinds (laughs) such an odd watermelon rind pickles is not a thing i'd ever heard of before no me neither but i had also never heard of peanut butter and peach tart or whatever dessert she concocts for Neil's return. awful. Peanut butter and peach pie made me kind of dry heave a little bit. Right? Yeah, Yeah. no. Say no, Neil's mom. That's not a good combination. Especially because the other option was apple. And then a bunch of them take the peach and peanut butter one. And I'm like, there's a perfectly good apple pie. Okay, but now I want to know, listeners, if any of you have ever heard of this truly bizarre combination, I want to know, is it any good? Should we try to seek it out? Yeah, that's true. I do want to know. Also, if you've had a watermelon rind pickle. Yeah. Or turned it into alcohol of some kind, because there's also a suggestion that she can drink it. Yep. She's a a peach. She's interesting. Yeah. She's peanut butter and peach pie. That's what she is. She sure is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't know. This book is great, and it's also a slog Mm -hmm. in the way that there's so many horrifying things that i just kind of wanted it to end there's no reprieve there's no reprieve and i think the film is even more bleak in its terminus i yeah okay do you want to introduce the film and then we can 
Yeah, okay. yeah. Summer, I was eight years old. Five hours disappeared from my life. Five hours. Gone without a trace. Are you ready? Here we go. Tonight on World of Mystery, we investigate the terrifying world of UFOs. I think I was taken too. I keep a log of all my dreams. Someone else is with me. Another boy. Your only way to uncover the truth. Maybe concentrate on that other boy in your dreams. He could help you find the answers you're looking for. I know all Neil's secrets. There's shit there you don't even want to know about, trust me. I'm looking for an Ann McCormick. Okay, so the film, as we mentioned, is from 2004, and it's written and directed by the same man, Greg Araki. And this is notable. It may not mean anything to you, Brenna, but he's a bit of an indie darling in the U.S., and his quote-unquote specialty is that he works quite often with queer-centered texts, often about teenagers. So this is very much in his wheelhouse. It's actually one of the reasons that I first sought this film out is because, as you mentioned off the top, this film is considered a bit of a hallmark of queer cinema. It's very Mm -hmm. important. It's very difficult. His previous film before this that a lot of people know is called The Doom Generation. It's teens uh, kind of out on a joyride and getting into trouble. Mm. So probably the best known person in the film outside of Elizabeth Shue, who plays Neil's mom, is Neil himself played by Mm -hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and this was coming two to three years after he had finished his run on Third Rock from the Sun. So it's before he really became known for films. He was probably still better known as a TV star. He gives this film credit for being the first film to really take him seriously uh, in terms of his range of what he was capable of. Yeah, and it's kind of undeniable how fantastic he is Mm -hmm. in the film to the extent that a lot of people really thought that he should have been considered for just a number of awards. Mm. So the other half is Brady Corbett, who I'm sad to say I don't know from anything else. He plays Brian. And then Michelle Trachtenberg plays Wendy. And I, of course, know her because she's on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She plays Buffy's sister, who is introduced in season five. She's really good in this role. She is, yeah. Which is interesting because she didn't get a lot of credit for her time on Buffy, in part because the character's quite a nuisance. But in this case, I think she uses the youthful spunk to her advantage. She comes off very much as a caring friend who's also like, don't mess with me. (laughs) (laughs) And then the guy who plays Eric is also not someone that I know, but he's played by Jeffrey Lycon or lick on. Hmm. And then the other adult of note that people might know is Avalyn is played by Mary Lynn Rashtuck, and of course she is Chloe from the 24 series with Kiefer Sutherland. Oh. Yeah. She's much prettier in the film than she's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, when she shows up and you're like, ah, oh, okay, they gave her an arm brace because she's got like a bit of a limp. And, mm-hmm. and a ponytail, a low ponytail. She's totally hot. Low ponytail being the hallmark of ugliness in Hollywood. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) And to me, that's actually one of the big distinctions between the film and the book is that she, I mean, I don't doubt that she was probably in her late 20s or early 30s when she filmed this, but she and 
Brian do not look that far apart in no. age. So it doesn't have the same kind of visual ramifications when you see them together. Agreed completely. Yeah. So, the film. Mm. Well, what did you think of the film? <laughs> I recognize that it's a very well-made film. And it is unflinching in the way it depicts particularly the abuse. I was reading about how they did it so that the young boys playing the young boy versions of Brian and Neil never actually knew what they were shooting. They only had like their lines. And the way they do it is, I don't know how you describe it. It's like close-ups of the children and close-ups of the abuser. And There's actual no contact, yeah. Yeah, you never see him touch them, but it's actually, I think more effective and more disturbing because all you see is the coach's face as he like leans in to kiss Mm -hmm. and it's one of the most disturbing things i've ever seen in cinema it's a really effective film it's a very effective adaptation the only thing that i missed from the film is i don't think the film is as effective at detailing neil's psychological journey around the idea of who this abuser was in his life yeah We only really get one scene where he sort of like announces to Wendy that it was love and that they were in a relationship and it was like a summer fling. And Wendy's like, that's not not true. (laughs) Um, So you don't really get the sense that that's what it has been in his head for all of this time. Mm -hmm. And you also don't get the aftermath. Exactly. Of him realizing like, ooh, no, why did I think that? Maybe that's not okay. Yeah, so I I felt as good as Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in this role, and he's very, very good in this role, I felt that the role itself had less emotional impact than the book. Mm -hmm. As I was saying off the top, there's a scene in the book when he is hustling in New York after he has moved to be with Wendy. He's not nearly as careful as he should be. He's tired one night, and he's sort of sick of the scene where he usually picks up John's, and he leaves and ends up getting in the car with a guy on the street who takes him all the way to Brighton Beach and he rapes him. I mean, it's not, there's nothing else to say about it. And the scene is brutal in its depiction in the book. Yes. Completely unflinchingly brutal. Mm -hmm. And I, this is the first time in the history of our whole podcast, the whole first season I got through everything, (laughs) occasionally looking away at stuff that was really violent, but I skipped that scene. It takes place in a bathroom Neil locks himself in the bathroom to try to get away from this guy, or at least to take a breath and figure out what his next move is going to be. And the guy comes into the bathroom, and I just turned it off. Because the abuse had been so... It is... Immediate and intense, and I I just knew I couldn't handle watching that as a rape scene. I just knew I couldn't. Yeah. A violent rape scene. It's exceedingly violent. And the... I'm not going to say the fascinating thing, but the power of the way that Iraqi stages action, the way that he actually shoots the rape scene is nearly identical to the way that the abuse is shot with the teenagers. So Mm. what he's doing is he's using the power of editing and the Mm -hmm. framing of how he positions the actors and the cameras so that the violence and the abuse is all implied and it only makes it worse. Mm Mm-hmm. There's both sexual assault, but then there's also physical assault in which Neil is hit in the face repeatedly with a plastic shampoo bottle. And it doesn't sound like anything that you wouldn't have seen before. Like, I watch horror films all the time. And the stark reality of the presentation, the performances, 
and the way that it is framed is just so difficult. It's just mm-hmm. so hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Watching this around the time that I was coming out, which was late, I was in university, I wasn't even a teenager, but it really instills this idea that you have to be exceedingly careful mm-hmm. with how you decide to engage with people sexually, because it's mm-hmm. a whole different level of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. But coming back to Iraqi, I mean, he shoots it in a way that evokes Brian's memory losses. So the screen is constantly doing a slow fade to black yeah. to give you the sense that time is passing, but also that there's things that you're missing. There's gaps. Mm-hmm. And this is a low-budget independent film, and it really demonstrates the power of the medium to me. Um This sounds unrelated, but it's not, I swear. I've been listening (laughs) to the companion podcast to Chernobyl. We just listened to it on a drive up to where I'm moving to in a couple months. And I listened to the podcast and it's really interesting because I guess it's the showrunner explaining the choices that they've made. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about, there's an episode in Chernobyl where you see the men who were first, who first encountered the radiation in the hospital where they're being treated for their acute radiation poisoning. Right. And... You see the men. You see them in various stages of, I mean, frankly, bodily decay, right? Because that's what's literally happening to their bodies. Yeah, they're kind of disintegrating, right? Yeah, and it's Mm -hmm. graphic and it's horrible. And they talked about, you know, the process that the makeup folks went through. Anyway, there's one guy. It's the guy who actually had to look into the core of the 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 reactor. reactor. Mm -hmm. And so he has the most acute. Like, he's he's not going to live. He's had the most acute. And so his wounds are the most egregious. And um, there's a scene where one of the women, the woman scientist who is trying to figure out what happened, she's going around to all of the men and taking their stories of what happened on that day. Okay. And you see her, she's interviewing each of the men, and you see the men, you see her conversations with them, and you see her disgust, right, that she's trying to hold back as she moves a blanket and, like, a piece of them comes off on the blanket. And it's, like, really gross, right? So you're watching all these things that are really, really gross. And then she goes to meet the guy who looked into the reactor, mm-hmm. and you never see him. Oh. You never see him. You just see her yeah. asking questions of him and trying to suppress her reaction to him. Oh, that's so good. And they were talking about it on the podcast, and they're like, we did all the, he's like, we thought about it, like we planned out what that makeup would look like. Mm-hmm. He's like, but we decided not to show it. And in the end, it's actually somehow feels even more gratuitous to not show it because we know what your brain is doing right your brain is putting two and two together and being like it's got to be worse than everything that we've already seen but by not showing it your brain is just going to fill it in it's going to be so much worse your brain is an asshole when it comes to this stuff man (laughs) and and i knew i knew that I knew that if I watched that rape scene all it would take would be to see joseph gordon levitt's face reacting Mm -hmm. to haunt me frankly i was telling joe before we started recording that like that horrible scene at the end of the second season of 13 reasons why i thought about it like every day for seriously three weeks could not get it out of my brain yeah and i just didn't want it go there there's something about the visual representation of the trauma of rape it's not the rape itself it's having to watch the trauma of it Mm -hmm. visually that I, i can't go there anymore i just can't yeah I'll confess as difficult as I find that scene 
the violence of it almost makes it easier for my brain to process. It's the implications that are revealed at the end of both the book and the film of what the coach actually had them do on the particular sexual encounter. So what they had to do to earn that crisp $5 bill. You know, this is a sexual practice. There Mm -hmm. are people who are interested in this kind of thing. And between consenting adults... You go nuts. Yeah. You do what you want to do. But there's there's something so damaging. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's actually more graphic in the book because Helm just, like, he lays it all out. Yeah. Yep. Because they're adults at this point, too. So they have the linguistic capacity to describe. Mm-hmm. Like, Neil just the says... sensation. This is what it was. And you're thinking... Right. That's why Brian had that reaction with the calf on mm-hmm. Avalon's farm. But it's somehow so much worse, I think, in the film. And all yep. you see, it's just the coach. He's topless and he's laid out over the back of the couch. And you know exactly what's happening. And it's, yeah, it's worse for me somehow. I don't know. The pleasure he takes in it. And when you know the trauma that is at the root of it, it's really I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's beyond egregious. It's just oh, yes, yeah. and it's it's fascinating to me that this is where both the book and the film end, right? So yeah. we're talking about this long, lengthy process, like a decade plus of trauma, repression, acting out, all of these unconscious decisions made in the wake of this one inciting incident. We get to see it; it's absolutely horrifying. And then both texts end, and it's like. A giant F you. (laughs) Oh, I read this interview with Scott Heim. Oh, I've been been saying Helm, haven't I? Shoot. Oh, have you? I didn't honestly didn't notice. I read an interview with him because he went to Columbia. This book was his master's thesis. Oh, wow. For his MFA at Columbia. An initial draft of it anyway. And he, I think it was an interview with the Literary Journal at Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. And he's talking about the hopefulness of the ending i mean yeah is it i can see it i cannot one interpretation of the ending could be that the pair having now finally come together having spoken their truth they can come to peace with it right the idea that if brian wanted to now he could seek therapy and potentially pursue a romantic relationship for the first time in his life the idea that neil could process what he wants to get out of a romantic relationship and potentially pursue that right or that they could even reconcile with the relationships that they pushed away like brian rejecting his father neil taking his mom and eric and wendy for taking them for granted i think that is one possibility i will confess that i have the same reaction as you i don't (laughs) see this ending as hopeful no because at one point i mean doesn't he say at one point, like, I wanted to tell Brian it was all over, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, okay. and I think that's and the I power of it, right? Intellectually, I know that. It rejects this idea that by simply knowing something that you can then move forward from it, right? Yeah. Because we all know that's not how it works. No, I guess I know that. But I think uh... the idea is that now at least they know everything, right? There's nothing left to question or wonder about. It's almost like the narrative is in their control instead of that nebulous questioning area above them. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I found <laughs> it bleak, man. <laughs> I found it so bleak. 
It's very bleak. Ugh. Yeah. And in a way, you sort of, as a reader, with some understanding of conventions of literature, you're watching these stories unfold, and to a certain extent, your mind is racing slightly ahead of them, knowing that they're going to have to come together, right? Like, knowing that these two narratives only make sense once they understand each other. Mm-hmm. And I think your brain tricks you into thinking, like, well, once they once they both know, then yeah. that'll be good. <laughs> and it's not good. It's not good at all. It's not good in the way that we'd like, no. <sighs> it's interesting, though. I did more so than ever before on both the rewatch of the film and the reading of the book, it does almost feel a bit like they're playing with the conventions of a romantic comedy. Like we're waiting for the meet cute because everything in both texts hinges on the idea of getting these two people together. And they've just been missing each other at all of these different intersecting points, right? The film does a good job. I think uh, it took me a while on my read of the book to realize they kept missing each other. Like, I didn't realize that the Hallow- the two Halloweens were the same night, no, for example. yeah. It's not quite as clear as it could be. Whereas in the film, of course, because you're looking at it visually, you literally see them, like, passing each other mm-hmm. on the same night. Yeah. And I think Brian's sister even says, do you know that boy? And he's kind of like, Mer, I don't know. Yeah. Because, <laughs> of course, they're wearing costumes. Yeah. Kind of fantastic 80s level, like, 80s style Halloween costumes. Yeah. Scavenged from things around your house. Yeah. Before buying costumes was the norm. Yeah. It was like, how can we repurpose these things? I was once a potato. Oh. Yeah, large piece of burlap tied over my head with eye holes. I think I inherited several costumes that my sister had worn previous years, and they were (laughs) doctored to make them slightly more male. (laughs) (laughs) What is the origin of your trauma, Joel? Speaking of trauma, I mean, I, mm. I don't know how much more we want to belabor all the fantastically awful things, but I did want to give a shout out, just because you mentioned it, this this idea of the specter of AIDS hanging mm. over things. And mm-hmm. I love the escalation from the small town to the mm-hmm. big city. Mm-hmm. It's almost a secondary subplot about what safety is in a small yes. town compared to a big city and how... Yes. You know, things are so much safer. Like, there's a couple of times where Neil picks up men and they say, oh, well, you know, we don't have to worry about things because you're a teenager. And this is Hutchinson, Kansas. And you're just like, oh, wow. That's not true. Not at all true. No, it's an idea that's playing out in the second season of Pose right now as well, Mm. which is an FX show about the transgender community, the queer community, the minority cultures living in New York in the late 80s and early 90s. And it's very much investigating the impact of AIDS on the community and what they do and don't know. Mm. So that was a, a bit of an interesting connection. But I just love also the humanity of the scene where Neil oh, God. He picks up a man named Zeke who is revealed to be in some stage of the AIDS virus and he's got the purplish welts that are a symptom that accompanies the escalation of the disease. Oh, and there's this profound irony when... When Neil's like, I guess KS stands for something different in New York, right? Because KS is Kansas, but it's also the short form for those sarcoma. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, this was actually one scene that I felt was more effective in the film than it is in the book. Because there's something so empathetic and simultaneously horrifying about Neil giving the man a massage 
And yeah. I love the fact that it's not presented as disgust. So in the in no. the book, he's so uncomfortable and he's so afraid of what it means, even though he decides to follow through with it because he wants to be a good hustler. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the film, there's a kind of humanity to it. I think it's the most intimate encounter that he has of anyone. But it's also just absolutely terrifying to see what the simple act of a touch can do for someone who clearly does not get a lot of comfort where he's at at this point. Yes. Well, yeah, that that desperate need to be just held by another human being. And if you think about the kinds of, on the one hand, misinformation, on the other hand, propaganda and lies that were being spread about AIDS and people who had AIDS, the fact that Neil... I mean, the question in the book that I have is, does he really have any idea what he has just encountered? Like, we have no reason within the context of the novel to know mm-hmm. whether he does or not. I mean, he obviously knows the man is ill. Like, he's clearly ill, but... But Neil's such an idiot when it comes yes. to protection. Like, when he gets crabs and he literally has yeah. to ask Eric, do you know what this is? Like, why yeah. is my penis bleeding? <laughs> no, exactly. He doesn't know anything. And, like, he thinks of himself as this tough guy, but he there's so much that he doesn't know there's so much about which he is naive but also everyone speaks in this code right it's Mm -hmm. like well you need to be more careful in the city but no one ever actually articulates to him what that means that's i mean he very slowly finds that out for himself and then all at once yeah and there is that hilarious scene where he goes to have unprotected sex with the one man and the guy berates him (laughs) like but i do love the the jar full of condoms on the bedside table yeah very classy (laughs) yeah joe this was a lot this was a lot i'm really i do think it's a really powerful text both are incredibly well executed i also think that they might make interesting maybe interesting to read or watch alongside in the forecasting episode i talked about that nonfiction history of the aids crisis for young people Because I do think, like, this book being written in 1995, there are resonances and subtexts that I'm not sure are necessarily so evident now Mm -hmm. in terms of our relationship to that time period and and what risk would have felt like to Neil and to Wendy. I have a lot of empathy for Wendy in those scenes, watching him make these really bad choices and being like... What if I got you a normal job? What if you yeah. what if you did that for a bit? She's trying so hard, but she also knows him so well that she yes. can't just say you need to stop doing this. Like she mm-hmm. she already knows that that kind of action wouldn't work on him. Wouldn't work. Yep. Because he thinks he knows everything. Yeah. He's so worldly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because he hustles. Cuz he hustles in Hutchison, Kansas. Yeah. So he meets businessmen from the entire tri-state area. Oh my goodness. I just uh <sighs> Yeah, okay. Do you have any YA bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Oh, it feels so weird to do YA bingo with this. The only one that I really kept coming back to was parents just don't understand. Because the two moms, as much as they... I mean, the dad is an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Brian's dad is awful. He's just awful. In fact, I spent the whole first part of the novel thinking that his dad was the one who did something to him. Which doesn't seem out of the realm of the possible, right? Not at all. And the, the resonance is between the dad and the softball coach, or baseball coach, right? Because the dad is obsessed with sports. And, yep. Yeah. Anyway. But the moms, as much as they both love Brian and Neil, they have no friggin' clue. A, no. what they're doing. B, what they're setting their kids up for. C, how to help them. 
So parents just don't understand was my big one. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I don't really know that anything else kind of works all that well for this particular text. I mean, we've encountered so many queer secondary subplots that to actually be confronted with one so front and center, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, shades of Love, Simon. I was going to say the first time since Love, Simon, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the most explicitly queer text that we've read, right? In many ways, while they are both gay protagonists, this is the opposite of Love, Simon, (laughs) pretty much every other way. (laughs) And to be honest, as much as I love this movie and, you know, there's some really canonical queer cinema texts that I'm thankful exist, that's one of the reasons why Love, Simon is so refreshing is because Mm -hmm. there's a history of things like Mysterious Skin being, like, you get this you get philadelphia where tom mm-hmm. hanks is dying of aids but oh he gets to die a hero and you're just thinking yay where's thanks. my happy ending totally so that's why i wanted to do love simon and have that conversation about oh in a way it's such a fantasy text but at the same time dear lord aren't we owed it by now mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. can't wait for that disney plus reboot <laughs> <laughs> that'll be odd i think it's gonna be so weird I think we should cover it when it comes out. Well, obviously, we'll cover it when it comes out. Obviously. Mm-hmm. That's what we're here for, Joe. This is what we exist to do. Literally. <laughs> okay, so that's the quickest round of YA bingo we've ever had. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like a super bingo-y text. No, it feels almost disingenuous to yes. belittle these texts with, hey, let's have a fun game about it. It's like, no, yeah. no, let's no, not. Let's not. No. Okay, so... Let's do some social media stuff before we tell people what happens next. Okay, so we really want to hear about your experiences with this text. If it means something to you, please let us know. You can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. That'll get both of us. You can find me at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And I am at B. Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you want to keep sending us recommendations or texts that you think we should avoid or really just any kind of correspondence, you can reach us at hkhspod at gmail.com. Yes. And so we're about to take about a month off. This is true. You won't hear from us for a month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not entirely true. So we're taking the month of July off from this, although... There's every possibility that you, Brenna, may show up on another podcast that I do. Maybe. So if you desperately need to hear the two of us talking, <laughs> maybe See a people... psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> or you could tune in to my other podcast, and I think I'll make you cut a promo so that we can let listeners of this podcast know when that's available. But yes, oh, cool. uh, I think people can hop over to Horror Queers and they'll get the non-G-rated versions of us. <laughs> oh, I get to swear on that podcast? You bet your bleeping ass you do. <laughs> that didn't work at all, did it? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and when we do come back, the first text we're going to be joining you with is a reprieve. We're going to come back with Josie and the Pussycats, the... Yes film and the first two volumes of the comic correct so obviously josie like sabrina has a long history in the archie comics world so we're actually going to be doing i think this is the first time we've ever done this we're watching a film that came out before the text version this is the first time yeah so we're going to be looking at the two volumes of the recent josie revival whoop 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 
Yeah. I'm very excited for this one. Yeah, so keep an ear out for that the first Tuesday back in August. And have a great July until we talk to you. And remember, reach out on the socials or by email if you have some pressing YA news you need us to know in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yes. And until then, I will be seeing you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.